Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, a Cassus Belly project. Sorry I was gone for so long. Like I said, things got a little busy, but I'm trying to get things moving again. I also had to get a new computer, so I lost a lot of my files and had to record a new intro, which you'll hear in a moment. My timing wasn't terrible though, I suppose, since this episode begins what is basically part two of the show where America joins the war. I also think I'm going to change the format of the show. Instead of trying to keep up with approximately 25-minute episodes every two weeks, I'm going to shoot for longer episodes that are released less frequently. This allows me to write at my own pace, which I think will be a little easier. Anyway, in this episode, we cover the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the Japanese offensives that occurred immediately thereafter. So let's begin episode 17, Atari Mashita. Ah, have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? officials continued to decipher Japanese cables and wonder what exactly they were up to. Late on December 6th, Eastern Standard Time, the first installments of a 14-part message began arriving in Washington. Intelligence deciphered them in real time and delivered them to President Roosevelt, who read them silently. He knew the Japanese intended war, but no one yet knew how that war would start. Many expected the conflict to begin with an invasion of the Philippines. That seemed the most likely course of action. The Philippine archipelago offered the United States a massive naval and airbase in the western Pacific and provided an ideal staging area. Regardless, he must have tossed and turned that night, waiting for the rest of the cable to come in and be deciphered. By 10 o'clock in the morning of December 7th, the last one of the Japanese messages came through. It was an ultimatum. If the United States did not meet Japanese demands by 1 o'clock Washington time, then they would cease diplomatic relations. Never before had the Japanese been so specific as to indicate the hour that they demanded a response. What the men in Washington did not know, could not have known, was that 1 p.m. Eastern Time corresponds to 7.30 a.m. Honolulu Time, the moment at which the Japanese torpedo bombers would be dropping their first fish in the water. Meanwhile, the Japanese consulate in Honolulu continued to send messages back to Tokyo regarding the disposition of forces at Pearl Harbor. The fleet was moored at its usual positions in Pearl, no torpedo nets were set, and barrage balloons were absent. Unfortunately, the fleet was not docked into the deep water port of Lahaina, where depth would prevent recovery, and the carriers were at sea, but these were minor inconveniences. Lastly, no air reconnaissance was aloft, so the approaching fighter-bomber group would not be detected. General Marshall, Chief of Staff of the Army, having read the deciphered messages to the embassy in Washington as well, wrote out a warning to be distributed to all commands. Quote, 
Japanese are presenting at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time today what amounts to an ultimatum. Also, they are under orders to destroy their code machines immediately. Just what significance the hour set may have, we do not know, but be on alert accordingly. Inform naval authorities of this communication. End quote. The message went out as fast as possible, but was held up by unfavorable atmospheric conditions from getting to Hawaii. To speed up the process, the military signalmen decided to send the message by teletype via Western Union. After transcribing and redirected via San Francisco, the message finally made it to Honolulu at 7.33 in the morning. It was too late. Several hours earlier, the Japanese aboard Admiral Nagumo's ships had awoken and begun preparing for their mission. For the most part, the Japanese were well-rested and prepared. They were confident and reassured by the soft music playing on Honolulu radio. The Hawaiian population was none the wiser to their machinations. Just to be sure, two reconnaissance planes were dispatched to retrieve last-minute information on the target. They were to break radio silence only with critical information regarding Pearl. Having found nothing out of the ordinary, the pilots never made a transmission and so remained undetected. Aboard the Akagi, Commander Fuchida awoke and dressed himself. He wore red under his pilot's uniform, so as not to alarm his men if he returned wounded. At 0550, all six carrier tops were abuzz with activity. The hum of 185 warplanes filled the air 220 miles northwest of Oahu. First, the Zeros were launched at 6 a.m., followed by torpedo bombers and horizontal bombers. Within 15 minutes, the entire first wave was aloft and circling the fleet. Once formed, they turned south. As the first wave flew away, the carrier crews worked frantically to bring the second wave above deck and prepare it for launch. Unbeknownst to Nagumo, one of his greatest fears was unfolding in the waters to his south. Japanese submarines had been probing Pearl for weeks leading up to December 7th, and he worried that one might approach Pearl and raise the Americans' preparedness for attack. Just that happened on the morning of the 7th. A Japanese midget submarine was caught trying to follow an American vessel into the harbor, but was discovered and promptly destroyed with depth charges. This was reported to hire, but the message was confused and interpreted as yet another false alarm from jumpy sailors. Had the incident been reported properly and taken seriously, the fate of Nagumo's air fleet may have been much different. But once again, luck was on the Japanese side. That was not the only stroke of fortune the Japanese had that morning. The naval radar station on Oahu detected and reported an enormous signature approaching. The officer in charge simply couldn't fathom that what his operator was seeing was an enemy air fleet, though. Due to arrive that morning, it was a flight of a dozen B-17s, and he assured himself that, that was all he was seeing. This was the last chance the Americans would have to prevent disaster. At 0753, Commander Fuchida announced Tenkai, take attack position. Then he observed the island and confirmed that he had in fact caught the American fleet asleep and thus announced Tora Tora Tora. The attack began. At the Ford Island Command Center, Lieutenant Commander Logan Ramsey watched sailors hoist the colors when he heard the scream of a plane diving nearby. His temper flared. Who was flying so recklessly on a Sunday morning? At 0757, he got his answer when the percussion blast from the exploding bomb shook the command center. Commander Ramsey ran to the radio room and ordered the operators to alert all stations. Quote, Air Raid, Pearl Harbor, this is no drill. End quote. In the harbor itself, the battleships Utah, Nevada, Arizona, Tennessee, West Virginia, 
Maryland, Oklahoma, California, and Pennsylvania sat at their moorings. These eight battleships were accompanied by five cruisers and 26 destroyers. As Lieutenant Jinchi Goto's plane dove for the Oklahoma, someone on board announced, Man your battle stations! This is no shit! But there was precious little the men aboard could do before the torpedo bombers leveled off 60 feet above the water and unleashed their deadly fish. The first torpedo struck the Oklahoma's hull and sent a plume of water hundreds of feet into the air. Moments later, two more torpedoes struck her, sending the peeled-open hull to the bottom. Behind her, however, the Maryland remained almost unscathed, suffering only two bomb blasts to her deck. Throughout the harbor, alarms began blazing, but the men aboard were already hard at work breaking ammunition out from locked boxes. With crowbars and sledgehammers, they broke off locks and pried open lockers, freeing their contents and passing them up above decks where they were fed into machine guns and anti-aircraft cannons. By 8.15, five Japanese planes had been knocked out of the air, but it was too little. Cries of Atari Mashita rang out from the Japanese bombers. It's a hit! Torpedoes and bombs were erupting all over Pearl, and the message had gotten back to Commander Genda. He was elated. The attack was a massive success. The Pennsylvania, at dry dock, fought hard. She pumped out so much anti-aircraft fire that the Japanese bombers generally avoided her, only landing one bomb. Other vessels did not fare so well, though. The light cruiser Helena was struck by a torpedo intended for the Oglala that ended up crippling both vessels. The California was destroyed when the first bomb to hit it struck its magazine. The Nevada was the only ship that managed to get underway, which only brought her more attention from the Japanese. Hoping to sink her at the entrance to the harbor, Commander Fuchida instructed his flyers to sink her in the channel. The Nevada took a massive beating, but plowed ahead, eventually running aground at Hospital Point, but the channel remained open. The Arizona and West Virginia received massive punishment as well. After the Oklahoma sunk, the Japanese pilots turned their attention to these two vessels in particular. A massive 16-inch naval shell landed right in the number two turret of the Arizona and penetrated all the way down into the magazine, where it exploded. The blast almost split the ship in two. A thousand men died from that single bomb, including the 1st Battleship Division Commander, Admiral Kidd, and Captain Van Falkenberg, the Arizona's skipper. But the bombs kept on coming, even as the ship sank. As she reeled from the initial blast and filled with water, the Japanese continued to hammer her. The repair ship Vestal was moored right next to the Arizona and was already ablaze when that fateful bomb struck her magazine. The blast from the Arizona's exploding ammo stores was so great that it snuffed out the flames raging on Vestal's decks. The Tennessee was not so lucky, however, for it was flaming debris raining down on her from the Arizona that sent her alight. Seemingly protected by the hull of the West Virginia, the Tennessee might have made it out in decent condition if it weren't for the destruction pouring out from the Arizona. While the torpedo bombers did their work at the harbor, the Zeke fighters spread across the island, targeting airfields and other infrastructure. At Hickam Airfield, they pummeled the B-17s bunched together in anti-sabotage formation and destroyed the outlying buildings, including the enlisted barracks, where 35 men died in a single bomb blast. Compounding matters, that flight of B-17s from California was arriving. They had to not only fight their way through Japanese fighters, but also find places to land. They scattered across the island, landing wherever they could, and remarkably, not a single one was shot down. 
The scene at Wheeler Airfield was almost identical. Planes parked tightly in neat rows. Japanese bombs and bullets tore through them, and American anti-aircraft gunners only began shooting after the damage was done. A few American aircraft managed to get aloft across the island and shot down four Japanese aircraft, but that was hardly a dent in their combat power. Then the second wave arrived. When the second Japanese wave of 167 aircraft arrived at 0900, the scene at Pearl and across the island was chaotic. Fires burned and smoke billowed, making targeting difficult. The second wave merely added to the destruction, but didn't sink any more ships. All the while, Admiral Kimmel had been able to witness the destruction of his fleet from his front lawn. Every blast, every bomb, was visible to him, and as if to drive home his defeat, as the attack wound down, a 50 caliber round struck him in the chest and fell to the ground. He picked it up and said to Commander Curtis standing next to him, It would have been merciful if it had killed me. All told, four battleships were sunk and four were damaged. Three cruisers and destroyers were damaged each. 188 aircraft were destroyed, 159 damaged. 2,300 men were killed, 1,100 wounded, along with 68 civilians killed and a further 35 wounded. In return, the Japanese lost 29 aircraft with 64 men killed. Pearl Harbor was a massive success, but the Japanese had made some surprising oversights. They did not destroy the fuel stores, nor did they destroy the naval facilities like dockyards or the submarine base. For all the damage they had wrought, Pearl Harbor was still a functioning naval base. Most importantly, though, the American carriers remained afloat. Meanwhile, back in Washington, Secretary of State Cordell Hull summoned the Japanese ambassadors Nomura and Kurosu. The meeting was supposed to take place at 1 o'clock local time, as the Japanese message had stated but the Japanese diplomats had more difficulty deciphering their own messages than the Americans, and so didn't arrive in Secretary of State Hull's office until nearly 2 o'clock in the afternoon, well after the attack on Pearl Harbor had already begun. Upon entering Hull's office, Nomura apologized for his tardiness, to which Hull asked why 1 o'clock had been the appointed time, as if he didn't already know. Nomura handed Hull the note, which he already knew the contents of, thanks to American signals intelligence and went through the motions of reading it. He set the note down and proceeded to chew out the Japanese emissaries. When they attempted to speak up, he put his hand to silence them, then ordered them to leave. The next day, President Roosevelt addressed Congress in his famous Day of Infamy speech. At the end, he implored Congress to declare war on the Empire of Japan. Remarkably, it was not a unanimous vote. One congressman dissented. Suddenly, America was no longer a divided country, reeling from the tail end of a depression, but instead a nation unified by fury. The Japanese had achieved a tactical victory and put the Pacific fleet on its back foot, but it would soon recover. They had bought themselves maybe six months of uncontested naval superiority in the Pacific. Across the Atlantic, Hitler was optimistic and held fast with Japan by declaring war on the United States. The rest of the German population wasn't so enthusiastic about America's entrance into the war, however. They all remembered well that it was America's intervention two decades earlier that had spelled doom for their side. The Eastern Front was also deteriorating at this time. The weather outside Moscow was bitterly cold, 40 below. The British and occupied populations were ecstatic for their part. Their perseverance in the face of almost certain defeat looked like it would pay off for the first time since the fall of France. 
The war that FDR knew needed to be fought, but he couldn't enter into, had fallen into his lap. He couldn't have avoided it now if he wanted to. He had a country united behind him. The reaction the Japanese had expected did take place briefly in isolation. A few West Coast communities and some residents on the Mississippi were hysterical and feared Japanese dive bombers striking their harbors next. But of course, this never materialized. What did materialize was American resolve in the form of pure manpower. Across the country, recruiting stations were suddenly and immediately flooded with young men eager to get revenge on the Japanese. Many recruiting stations had lines as long as several city blocks. The station at 90 Church Street in New York City was no different. All three services were overwhelmed with volunteers, and cots were set up to let some of the more eager volunteers sleep off their liquid patriotism if the need arose. Men came pouring in from the tri-state area, and they were, to a man, angry. As they stood in line, they talked about the treacherous Japanese in terms that only enraged young men can concoct. At the least, the Japanese were dirty yellow bastards. They also talked about where they were when they heard the news. It being a Sunday afternoon on the East Coast, many were relaxing or returning from church. At least one was playing basketball with his pals in Rutherford, New Jersey. Robert Lucky Lecky was the sports writer for the county newspaper and was preparing for his 21st birthday only two weeks away. After hearing the news, he made his way to enlist in the Marines. He was 5 feet 8 inches tall and full of piss and vinegar, as they say. So he was surprised to learn upon arriving at the Marine Corps medical screening that he was medically unqualified to serve. He was uncircumcised. He returned four weeks later, still bandaged, but healing and ready to go. The Marines put him on a train loaded down with other new recruits bound for South Carolina. As they traveled south and loaded more men aboard, the soon-to-be Marines were in high spirits, despite the awful conditions. Their joviality ceased when they arrived at Paris Island, though, and met their hulking martinet of a drill instructor. Sergeant Campbell, like all the drill instructors at Paris Island, had only six weeks to take this ragtag group of men from across the East Coast and turn them into Marines, and he took his job seriously. He marched them everywhere, all the time. He punished them mercilessly and drilled them until their feet bled, but he was doing his job. At the rifle range, he and the rest of the non-commissioned officers had to teach them to shoot. Lucky recalled that the Southerners seemed to shoot with ease, and Northern City boys had a terrible time of it, and the drill instructors sought to correct that with a flood of curses and oaths. He had never heard such a cacophony of obscenity and profanity, weaved together with such skill and in so many creative ways. Of course, blasphemy was an integral part of any good ass-chewing, and the religious men could do nothing but clench their teeth and tighten their fists when they heard it. There was one word in particular, though, that stood out among all the rest as chiefest of all curses. The four-letter word of all four-letter words that military men of all ages and ranks used to express every thought and in all parts of speech. Though technically it describes sexual intercourse, it was almost never actually used to describe it. Instead, it could be a verb, noun, adjective, or even conjunction. Through six weeks of relentless drill and marching and berating, their training was finally over. During that time, the world had seemed to shrink down to just those 30 men and their small world of barracks, mess halls, and rifle ranges. When they emerged, they found the war had continued on without them. The Japanese continued their Pacific expansion, and the Philippines were holding out in the Bataan Peninsula under General MacArthur. 
All across the country, men just like Lucky were emerging from their initial training and going into the Army, the Navy, the Marines, the Army Air Corps, and the Merchant Marine as newly minted fighting men. Some would serve in the Pacific, others in Europe or in the Atlantic convoys or in Southeast Asia. Lucky, himself a prolific author who wrote many books about his experience in the Second World War and was portrayed in the HBO miniseries The Pacific, may have run across one Frank G. Lyons of Brooklyn, New York, who was enlisting in the Navy and was 20 years old in late 1941. He would go on to train in Florida as an underwater demolitions expert, the much-vaunted Frogmen, and eventually land in Okinawa. That was still many years off, however. Immediately, the Japanese continued their onslaught in the Pacific. At 4 a.m. on December 8th, the Philippine command learned of the attack on Pearl Harbor and set to a counter-raid. They floated the idea of flying the 35 B-17 Flying Fortresses in Manila to Japanese-occupied Formosa. The raid never materialized, though. After eight hours of dithering and trying to get permission from MacArthur, a Japanese air raid arrived and destroyed the tiny Far East Air Force. Of the 35 bombers, 18 were destroyed outright. A raid on Formosa would have probably been a disaster anyway. The Far East Air Force lacked fighter escorts entirely, and the Formosa garrison was strong and ready for a raid from the Philippines, which was still an American protectorate at the time. Years later, MacArthur said that if he had received word that his subordinates wanted to raid Formosa, he would have denied it anyway. The land forces in the Philippines, under MacArthur's command, were still impressive though, at least on paper. He had at his disposal 31,000 American troops, 12,000 Philippine scouts, and the 100,000 strong Filipino conscript army. Of this force, only the 31st Infantry Regiment was actually combat ready though. The first Japanese landings began on December 8th, only hours after the raid on Pearl Harbor. These were only preliminary though, the main invasion was still yet to come. That same day, the Japanese attempted to invade the, and occupy Wake Island, a small atoll about halfway between Hawaii and the Philippines. The island was held by the 1st Marine Defense Battalion, composed of about 450 men. On the morning of December 8th, the Japanese launched an air raid consisting of medium bombers to destroy garrison aviation, which ended successfully, leaving only four Marine aircraft serviceable. Then, three days later, on December 11th, the main invasion force arrived. Remarkably, the Marines held off the invasion. The four remaining Wildcats and the five-inch coastal defense guns kept the landing forces away. The Japanese lost destroyers Hayate and Kisaragi, suffering 400 casualties. The Japanese would soon be back. On December 23rd, the force returned with the carriers Horyu and Soryu, as well as 1,500 Japanese Marines. They began landing at 2.30 in the morning and would continue fighting for 15 days until the American garrison finally surrendered, short of food and ammunition. Two weeks later, after the initial landings, the 14th Army landed at Lingayen Gulf, 100 miles north of Manila, and disembarked three regiments on the first day with essentially no resistance. Two days later, on December 24th, another 8,000 men were landed at Leyman Bay, just outside Manila. Within a week, 43,000 Japanese soldiers were ashore and racing towards Manila. Even MacArthur had to recognize that Manila was destined to fall, so he declared it an open city and removed his forces south. He went for the island of Corregidor and ordered his men to march to Bataan, where they would form a redoubt and hold out until the navy arrived with relief. The fighting retrograde was executed surprisingly well. 
Tanks held up the enemy's motorized columns, and bridges were blown at the last possible moment. The Allied forces moved along swamps, rivers, and lakes to cover their flanks, and ensure the Japanese only had one avenue of advance toward them. By ordering his forces to hole up in Bataan, MacArthur bought his men time. But with the Pacific fleet in disarray, relief was a long shot, and probably wasn't even on the way. All over the Western Pacific, the Japanese were launching offensives. In Southeast Asia, the Japanese launched their Malaya Offensive on December 8th. Having already conquered French Indochina in September of 1940, British Malaya was all that was left for them to essentially dominate the region. Their goal was Singapore, the crown jewel and signature fortress of the British Empire in the Far East. Both sides were prepared for a long and bloody campaign. The British had invested all of their power in the coastal artillery in Singapore. In the next episode, we'll cover the fall of Singapore, the raid on Darwin, and Japanese operations in the Indian Ocean.